Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focused in security policy and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. So, before we get too far into things, I want to again mention a bit of housekeeping that I brought up in the last episode, which is that having thought for a while that it would be nice to have a, a more direct channel to communicate with the folks who listen to OK Talks, besides, of course, just suggesting that you brave Elon Musk's Twitter, I've started an email list centered around the podcast. If you want to get a ping when a new episode comes out, shoot me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com, uh, and I'll put you on the list. I promise I've got no plans of massively filling up your inboxes. Also, I really did mean it in the last episode when I said, please do feel free to reach out if you have ideas for the show, topic you want me to cover, somebody you think I should have on. Can't promise I'll always be able to answer or very quickly, but I'm serious. I'd love to hear from you. Oktalkspodcast at gmail.com. Also, as always, uh, please don't forget to like and subscribe to the show, and, and most importantly, share it around with anybody who you think would get something out of it. Thanks to those who already have, thanks in advance to anybody else who plans to. Whew! Alrighty, so, with all that admin out of the way, at the very end of the last episode of OK Talks, I started saying something like, uh, I promise the next episode's gonna focus on something other than the stunning hypocrisy of one of America's two major political parties. <laughs> and then as I was recording, I started realizing that with that one political party on the verge of shutting down the American government, maybe it was a bit premature to make that promise. And yep, here we are. As it stands right now, unless either the craziest members of the U.S. House GOP caucus have a lobotomy, or Speaker Kevin McCarthy has a spine transplant and decides he doesn't care if those aforementioned members of his caucus threaten his speakership, and then, after either of those hypothetical things, Congress takes all of the Adderall in the known universe in order to get an absurd amount of work done in just the space of a couple of days, we are in fact heading for a government shutdown. So, with that being the case, I thought that it would be helpful for those in my audience who hear that expression, government shutdown, and understandably don't quite get what it means, uh, if I were to do an episode of this show explaining what the implications are, especially as I've now done... Uh, at two different points, uh, episodes freaking out about what would happen if Republicans decided to crash through the debt ceiling, which is another huge issue that they like to play chicken with. So people sometimes get government shutdowns and ra uh, not raising the debt ceiling confused. And I think it's worth helping folks differentiate between those two important but distinct concepts. Just in case anybody's curious, that last episode where I dig a bit further into the history of the debt ceiling, what it means and what would happen if we breached it, uh, that's all in episode number 40 of this show. Just in case you haven't gotten around to that episode, I'll just briefly say that the U.S. has never before defaulted on its debt, as would happen if Republicans ever go through with their periodic threats to not raise the debt ceiling if they aren't given whatever they're demanding at the time in exchange for doing their job. Were the U.S. ever to default in ways I explain, again, in more detail in episode 40, it would send the U.S. and global economy into a tailspin, destroy America's credibility around the world, and basically upend the current global order. So, you know, not great. I should say at the top uh, that although a government shutdown is going to be harder to avoid at this point, I think, than the potential breach of the debt ceiling Republicans put the country through this last spring, and this shutdown will certainly also be a very bad thing for America and for liberal Western democracy more broadly, 
The imminent prospect of this shutdown is actually quite a bit less scary than the potential debt ceiling crisis we faced earlier this year. Unlike with a default resulting from failure to raise the debt ceiling, for example, we have actually been here a number of times. Every single time, as far as I'm aware, at least in the modern era, the fault of the Republicans, for the record. Also, the damage to the economy of this ridiculous own goal that the Banana Republicans are looking to score against America will probably be damage that can be counted in billions of dollars rather than in trillions, as, again, would be the case if we were to ever default on our debt. That being said, though, I don't want to minimize the severity of the situation, both in terms of its practical effects and the broader connotations for the future of American democracy, since, unfortunately, with the modern Trumpist Republican Party being the way it is, that realistically seems to be at stake almost every week now. So, before going deeper into the consequences of a potential shutdown, I think first I should probably just clarify what it means when we say government shutdown, because, you know, it, it does sound... I don't know, almost so straightforward that you think it's like a trick question on a test or something. Now, I've happened to be abroad for, I want to say, three government shutdowns at this point. And a question I almost always get under these circumstances from non-Americans who are totally confused by this whole exercise usually sounds something like, Oliver, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, how can they just shut down the government? Well, here's what it means. Every year, in order to fund the government, Congress has to pass and the president has to sign either a budget determining the levels of spending on the government's programs or what's called a continuing resolution, which is an alternative that basically is just something that says, yes, keep going at the levels we have now. If neither of those things happen, there's then basically no law in place allowing for the funding of the government and the government, yes, basically just shuts down. Now, does that mean that the entire U.S. government ceases to exist overnight? No. But most non-essential services do halt, which is to say, the government basically stops doing everything that it usually does except, like, vital national security stuff until a new budget is passed through Congress and signed by the president. Shutdowns aren't really something I thought were a common occurrence throughout America's existence. <laughs> Not really something that made a lot of appearances in history class. So upon doing a tiny bit of research just now, I learned that, yes, this does seem to be a somewhat recent thing, originating with an opinion issued by the Attorney General at the end of the Carter administration stating that the government would need to shut down in the case of funding gaps. Now, I'm not really sure if there ever were funding gaps before, and if so, what happened. And I gotta be honest, I didn't quite care enough to actually put work into researching that little bit of trivia, as it isn't critical to the point I'm making in this episode, so I'll just be content to live in ignorance on that one. Unless somebody in the audience knows, in which case, oktalkspodcast at gmail.com. For the purposes of what we're talking about in this episode, though, shutdowns didn't really start happening in earnest until the 1990s. When Republicans retook the House for the first time in a couple of decades and made Newton Leroy Gingrich the Speaker. Now, books could be written, and I think some already are, about how Newt Gingrich is possibly more responsible for ruining American politics than any other single human being. I'm really tempted to pound the table about this for a while, but my pent-up diatribe about Newt Gingrich is only barely more essential to the theme of this episode than the question of what happened in funding gaps before 1980, so I will spare you. Other than to say that this man took direct aim at the notion of cross-partisan comity by, among other things, 
encouraging his House members to not move to Washington and thus not make friends of the opposition party or their families, and pioneered the tactic of going onto the House floor and delivering an angry rant straight into the C-SPAN camera. Because even if the House chamber was totally empty, the C-SPAN footage that looked like you were yelling at somebody made for good attention-getting TV, because the camera angle didn't show that you were actually just shouting into an empty room. As part of Gingrich's strategy of discouraging bipartisan cooperation and reducing American congressional politics into an uncooperative screaming match, Republicans started using the threat of government shutdowns to force concessions from the Democrat who was president at the time. And that's basically where this all began. Basically, every time this happens, it seems to follow a pattern, which is at least somewhat similar to the sort of hostage-take pattern I've laid out in that earlier episode talking about the game of chickens Republicans now also play with the debt ceiling. It looks something like this. Republicans want something. Maybe tax cuts for the rich, killing a health care law, more border security, cuts to various programs that help poor people, whatever, one of their usual priorities. But they don't actually have the legitimate means to get it through the normal give-and-take of the legislative process, either because it won't pass both houses of Congress or a president would veto it. So they threaten to blow up the entire government unless the Democrats cave and give them whatever they want. I think they thought this is a good idea for a couple of reasons. First, although at this point they really do seem to have kind of gone all in on rightist authoritarianism, Republicans for the last few decades have framed themselves as the anti-government party. This really took off under Reagan, who famously said, <clears throat> The scariest nine words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So when Republicans got power under Reagan, they proceeded to dismantle a bunch of important programs and made the government less effective. You know, keep the government out of your business. Except, of course, on social issues, because going after gays and abortion rights helped keep the hardcore evangelical part of their coalition in line. And then after Reagan's term ended and Bush 41 left office, Republicans in Congress saw no downside to a strategy of deliberately sabotaging government in order to then run in the next election as the anti-government party. Making government look ridiculous and dysfunctional by staging shutdowns, they assumed, wouldn't hurt them at election time when they wanted to argue that the government is in fact ridiculous and dysfunctional. The second reason I think that they've thought this tactic of forcing shutdowns would work for them is that, in modern times at least, as I've argued in just about every episode of this podcast that in any way touches American politics, the Republican Party is just not really a responsible governing party as such, and in the context of a political hostage-taking situation, I think they usually assume, with some reason, that the Democrats ultimately are going to be the adults in the room and will try to de-escalate and potentially cave into Republican demands. Third reason I think Republicans have opted for this tactic since it became available... I think in my first point of these three, I made it sound like I think the anti-government-ism of the modern Republican Party is disingenuous, and I do think that it often is, to a degree. <laughs> well, or at least wildly hypocritical. But I also think there has been genuineness to it at different times among different individual Republican elected officials for different reasons in different sorts of ways. In the case of this potential shutdown, for example, the shutdown I think we'll probably see in a few days, well, I think it doesn't actually represent the will of most elected Republicans who probably quietly support the deal Kevin McCarthy made with Biden a couple of months ago and is now reneging on. McCarthy, however, is of course reneging on that deal because a small group of kooks and lunatics in his caucus are telling him to do it, or they will force him from the speakership. And although it's not really clear what those people actually want, their desire for straight-up chaos does seem genuine. As Michael Caine's character in The Dark Knight put it, 
Some men, Mr. Wayne, just want to watch the world burn. In another time, back in what we might call the early days of the government shutdown era, I think more ideological small government conservatives legitimately thought that government shutdowns would be a sort of cleansing experience reinforcing their government reduction agenda. You know, in addition to maybe bullying Democrats to cave into their immediate demands, having no government for a little while would show Americans that they don't need government. Unfortunately for them, though, shutdowns usually don't seem to end up being good politics for the party that gets blamed for them. And since Republicans have always been the ones who seem way more comfortable with the idea of shutdowns, rightly, since it's always them, those three assumptions I just outlined, the rationales they're making when opting for a shutdown, some combination of which always seem to be in the mix when they drive the country over the cliff, tend to turn out to be wrong. Here's why that might be. So first, just to recap, I've talked so far about the origins of government shutdowns in the modern era, the political calculus one party makes in causing them, and what a shutdown means in abstract terms. Let's talk for a minute about shutdowns in real terms, as opposed to the abstract, well, Congress failed to pass a budget so the government ran out of funding that I laid out earlier. I'm just going to name now some of the practical implications of a potential shutdown. I emphasize the some because there are certainly going to be more than just these top lines that identify and I lack the wherewithal, willpower, or time to track them all down. So, here are some of the practical impacts. So, not including active duty folks in the military, there are a couple million people working for the U.S. federal government. When the government shuts down, most of those people are effectively on an unpaid, involuntary vacation of indeterminate length. Side note, actually, I shouldn't use that language considering how much I deplore the atrocious approach to vacation taken by the U.S. compared to literally every other developed country. If anyone wants to hear about just how badly American workers are getting screwed compared to everyone else in this regard, go back to ancient history and listen to episode 15 of this podcast. But I digress. Back on point, I should say instead that most of those several million government employees will be on effectively an unpaid suspension of indeterminate length. Even better, government employees who are in a national security role will be asked to keep working. But just one minor detail, we're not going to be paying them. We probably will later, but, you know, anybody whose budget is a little tight right now and they are living paycheck to paycheck, well, good luck. In addition to millions of federal employees getting screwed over, the government will just kind of stop doing a lot of what it ordinarily does. Here's just a few examples, a list that is by no means comprehensive or in a particular order. When the government shuts down, about 7 million mothers who receive nutrition assistance through the Women, Infants, and Children program will stop receiving it within days. Routine inspections of, like, meat and other food should continue, but might be interrupted to some degree. They were the last time the government shut down. Possibly also some interruptions to inspections of drinking water facilities. So ask your doctor if salmonella is right for you. Speaking of, various uh, federal medical institutions like the FDA and the NIH will have to furlough a bunch of employees. So work to study and approve new medication probably slows down or stops. Sure hope nobody's life depends on one of those experimental treatments becoming available as soon as possible. What else here? No IRS agents would be available to provide any assistance to taxpayers. This is actually a very consistent theme. Basically anything to do with like government people relations or consumer protection or anything like this really won't be happening. Various financial regulatory agencies will have to furlough most of their workers, so let's hope they're isn't any serious financial crisis besides, of course, the almost inevitable economic downturn that will result from this whole pointless exercise. 
the Federal Emergency Management Agency could run out of emergency funds pretty soon, so let's also hope that Mother Nature doesn't decide now is a great time for a natural disaster. Much of the FAA and TSA employees will stay on the job, so it's not like it would suddenly become impossible to travel in America, but they also aren't able to do facility safety inspections or do any hiring and training for a while, so... Can't imagine that wouldn't at least have some impact, which is great, in a country that has suffered massive travel snafus in recent years due to kinks in the travel system. For the sake of my fellow Americans abroad, I know at least some of you listen to this podcast, I should say that at least initially consular services should continue, but some passport processing stuff depends on other parts of the government and could slow down, which could lead to consular services getting hurt if this drags on too long. I think national parks might stay open, but no one really would do anything to maintain them, so if you're planning a trip to Yellowstone anytime soon, get ready for no bathrooms and piles of uncollected garbage and stuff. Federal courts have enough money to stay open through, like, partway through October, but might start having to slow some things down. Oh, and usually just the process of starting all this up again, once the shutdown is resolved, tends to cost billions of dollars. You can't just turn it off one day and turn it on the next. So, you know, fiscal responsibility. Now, it's worth noting, as I uh, rattle off a giant list of the practical, like, specific, immediate impacts of a potential shutdown, there are some longer-term, broader impacts to consider as well. Impacts that, I'd argue, get amplified every time Republicans shoot America in the foot by doing this. For one thing, this sort of thing happening has got to be causing brain drain, basically, in the public sector. Like, why would the best and brightest want to go work for the government when every couple of years at this point they can basically count on some stupid Republican temper tantrum resulting in them effectively getting short-term fired? Or better yet, forced to work without pay. Like, we're literally not going to be paying the troops here. And those who are asked to work without pay will, as I say, probably get back pay later, but... I'm pretty sure the ones who get furloughed won't get any remuneration, which, by the way, will inevitably lead to the state-level unemployment systems getting absolutely overrun. Also, anyone who isn't an employee of the federal government but had a government contract is basically screwed here, which disincentivizes companies from working with the government in the future, or maybe incentivizes them to charge more, thus directly screwing over taxpayers. Besides the sense of instability this creates domestically around the government, I mean, think about what this does in a foreign policy context. Like, we are right now in the most serious intellectual battle since at least the Cold War, possibly since the 1930s, over the notion that liberal democracy is a good thing, or at least the best way for humans to govern. The liberal democratic West is standing for democracy in the face of authoritarian regimes of various flavors. (laughs) I say that to allow for the fact that China is technically ruled by a party that calls itself communist, but the governments in China and Russia could both very easily be described as fascist. How does it look to the rest of the world when the world's most powerful small-d democratic government just falls apart and stops providing basic services because, like, 10 of the most clownish members of a 435-member legislative body want to drive up their online fundraising numbers. Yes, as I said at the top, this is less bad than the debt ceiling thing. But it's still bad for all the reasons I've spelled out and more, which is why, it turns out, that a small bipartisan group of senators seems interested in maybe helping to make government shutdowns be not a thing anymore. 
There's a bill that's working its way through a Senate committee sponsored by moderate Democrat Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire and not at all moderate but at least sane Republican James Lankford of Oklahoma, a bill that would, in scenarios where government funding runs out, basically trigger two-week extensions of the current levels of funding and require Congress to focus only on spending bills until the situation resolves. So that's an interesting idea. Several other similar bills are being floated as well, like one by Hillary's former VP nominee and a guy who winked at me once when I waved at him, Senator Tim Kaine. I'm sure there are more details to be worked out. Something like this, though, could be a really good thing for the stability of American governance. <laughs> Next, let's get rid of the debt ceiling so we can eliminate that extremely dangerous hostage scenario from the board as well. I should say, at the time I wrote the outline for this episode, the Senate had, on a bipartisan basis, passed a spending bill that they'd sent over to the House. I actually think this bill probably would pass the House were it to actually be brought up for a vote, but I don't think Speaker Kevin McCarthy will allow that to happen, because if he does, the craziest members of the Republican caucus will move to kick him out of the Speakership, and, you know, better that we should go through all this hassle that I've just described than that poor Kevin McCarthy should have to risk losing the Speakership, although Lord only knows why the guy wants the job at this point. I should also say that, yep, at the time I'm recording this, it's been reported in the last hour that McCarthy isn't going to allow the House to vote on that bill to fund the government, that the Senate passed yesterday on a bipartisan basis. As I said at the top, technically this shutdown is preventable, but I think it's gonna happen. And when it does, it'll be yet another reminder of how America's two major political parties are not just two sides of the same coin. I often encounter people who don't follow American politics that closely, and thus assume that, you know, since America's a two-party system, uh, that it must be one in which both teams are playing by roughly the same set of rules. So when there's dysfunction in Washington, you know, plague on both their houses. But no, that's just not the case, as I keep arguing episode after episode. And the fact that this week, one of those two parties is about to let a dozen or so of its craziest members drive the U.S. government off a cliff rather than in any way cooperate with the other party, that's just the latest reminder. American politics is not a measured debate between two political blocks with competing ideas. It's one party that, yes, has its flaws, but overall is doing its level best to keep the lights on. And then another, at least most of its elected leaders, if not necessarily all its supporters, that's approaching this thing like a bar fight, where the idea of placing principle, precedent, proportionality, decency, fairness, loyalty to country over short-term political gain, well, that's for losers and cucks. The Democratic Party, they just don't do shit like this. They don't shut down the government or threaten to default on America's debt or grind the U.S. military to a halt, as I discuss in episode 43, whenever they don't get exactly what they want. They just don't play that way. Is there at times some inconsistency in terms of the policy views? Yeah, sure, sometimes. It's a big tent. On this show, I've hinted at some of my own frustrations with certain glaring contradictions between some of the widely held viewpoints on the American left that I won't bother complaining about here right now. But in terms of tactics, of just playing dirty like this, no. The Democrats really just don't do it. Or at least I can't think of a parallel. And there are times when I think the Democrats should play a bit more hardball, if only to balance the scales a bit so that they're at least bringing <laughs> like a baseball bat to the metaphorical gunfight rather than the I don't know, foam finger squirt gun that they often bring now? Maybe the country would be better off if the Democrats did that. But I know the country and the world would be better off if the Republicans put down the metaphorical gun. <laughs> well, the literal one too, but that's another story. Changing topics here, before I wrap up this episode, 
I want to just do a quick check-in on some of the highlights of Donald Trump's week, in case anyone's interested. In the last few days, the man a majority of Republicans believe should be the next president wrote, I assume on purpose, on his weird little social media platform, that if he's elected, he will actively attempt to investigate various of America's legitimate news platforms for treason with the aim of shutting them down. Comcast, with its one-sided and vicious coverage by NBC News, and in particular MSNBC, often incorrectly referred to as MSDNC, Democrat National Committee, should be investigated for its country-threatening treason. Also, he said that the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, a man who has dedicated his entire life to the U.S. Army and finished that career as America's highest-ranking military official, a position Trump himself put Milley in, should maybe be killed. Because in the instability of Trump's last few months after he lost the election, intelligence reported that the Chinese were worried that Trump might attack them to distract from his domestic problems. So Milley gave them a call and basically said, no, no, don't worry, we're not going to attack you, in order to prevent a war with the world's then-largest country. And then on Tuesday... Well, yes, actually, yes, on Tuesday, a judge in New York is making it pretty clear that the Trump Organization, Trump's family's company is going to be convicted of serious fraud, which will have a number of impacts, including basically forbidding them from operating in New York and a number of other places, and possibly also, I think, confiscating a bunch of their assets. I <laughs> rather doubt it'll shock anyone listening that I think this is a really good thing. But I also think it's a reminder of the importance of enforcing laws and regulations around white-collar business, you know, finance stuff, all the time. Because, and standard caveat, I haven't been to law school or worked in law enforcement, but I don't think that the Trump Organization just now started doing these things. Like, yes, they have faced some legal accountability in the past, mostly civil, I think. But this seems like the most severe legal trouble they've faced yet, as far as I understand it. I guess I probably should have run this by my usual source of legal analysis before going on the air with it. You know who you are. Thanks for all the other times you've helped out the show. And since Donald Trump is hardly a famous paragon of rule following, I'm sure that this legal action is legit. What I'm less sure of is why it didn't happen earlier. I mean, why has this guy been able to just kind of skate up until now? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, and Trump's company only recently started cutting corners. Or maybe the relevant agencies didn't have the sufficient resources to investigate this before. What worries me more is the possibility that they just weren't that interested. Are there other financial crimes going on out there that won't be pursued in a timely manner or at all? Bottom line, this is good. It's also a reminder of the importance of what we might call swift justice. Because it sure would be nice if Donald Trump and his company had been held accountable for these things a long time ago, rather than at a specific moment where his finally facing the music would seem to play straight into a hysterical right-wing narrative that him facing consequences is actually nothing more than a left-wing plot to keep the dear leader out of the Oval Office. In any case, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show and want to make sure not to miss the next one, hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen, or shoot me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com, as I mentioned at the top. If you really want to do me a solid, please do go ahead and share the show with anyone you think might get something out of it. To anybody who already has, thanks. To any who will, thanks in advance. Thanks, as always, to Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork, and to everyone else for listening. Music